Today's, today's teaching text is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 28. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether, then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since, God, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Jenny. That was a long one, um, but a beautiful one. 
Well, uh, good morning again. My name is Matt. Good morning to those who are streaming, which may be more than usual on this cold, cold Sunday. Um, yeah, well, having a baby changes everything. That's, that's the title, The Baby Changes Everything. And uh, it's true. You rearrange your furniture, you rearrange your relationships, you rearrange your entire life. And this is true for us, and it's also true for the coming of Jesus as a baby into our world. A baby changes everything. And that's what our sermon series during this season of Epiphany, that's what the church season is right now between uh, Advent, Christmas, and Lent, you have the season of Epiphany of encountering the life of Jesus. And so that's what we're doing now. Talking about how the coming of Jesus into our world uh, radically reorients the way we understand and relate to God and one another. Jesus becomes the new center of everything. Uh, The center of everything. And so in this series, we're addressing five shifts for becoming a Jesus-centered community, a community that holds Jesus at the center. Um, These are adapted from a ministry called the Jesus Collective, which is a movement seeking to resource a more Jesus-centered Christianity. Now, I want to illustrate what I mean by the, the centering of Jesus really quickly here. Because sometimes when we hear someone say that something is centered, it just means it's not too far to the left or too far to the right. It's centered, right? Like when you hang a picture. Is that picture centered? No, it's hanging to the left. No, it's hanging to the right. And in that case, centering Jesus looks like this picture that we can put up. Or not picture, just words. But anyways, you got Jesus right in the middle. He's, he's the centered. So he's not too far left. He's not a Democrat or a progressive or a a liberal. He's not too far right. He's not a Republican or a conservative or a fundamentalist. He's right there in the center. And uh, that's okay, but that's not really what I'm talking about when I say centering Jesus. When I say centering Jesus, I mean in the same way that we say that the sun is the center of our solar system. Uh, everything revolves around him and is drawn towards him with the gravity that holds everything together. Okay, so that would be this next image where Jesus sort of holds it all together and reinterprets all of it. All those things, politics, church, community, social justice, the Bible, the way we disagree, the way we hold power, Um, there, of course, could be a thousand different things up there. Those are just a few. But Jesus becomes the center. The gravity, like in the solar system, that holds it all together. And last week we talked about the Bible in this way. And that Jesus isn't just the nice, soft side of God to balance out a more angry or scary image that we see in certain verses of the Old Testament, but that Jesus is actually the center of Scripture, of the Bible. In fact, if we read the claims that Jesus makes about himself in Scripture, 
and the claims that different New Testament writers like Paul make about Jesus, then Jesus is the full image of God. Not just a part, but the whole picture. And if that's the case, then God always looks like Jesus and all scripture is properly read through him. Jesus becomes the center and the interpretive key to all scripture. And so that's the first shift that we talked about last week, where Jesus becomes the center of scripture. And today we talk about what shifting Jesus to the center means in our understanding of the gospel, of the good news. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for today. Thank you for whatever reason you have for making the weather so cold. Whatever it does that's good, uh, we give you praise for. And we also ask, God, that you will bring um, safety and protection to those who are unsheltered from the cold this day. Would you be with them? Would you be providing places for them uh, even now? God, we ask that you would speak to us through your word this morning, that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, and as we prayed in the call to worship, hearts that are not hardened, but softened to what you might have for us. In the name of Jesus, who holds all things together, we pray, amen. So, we live in uh, an individualistic world, particularly in the West, but the West's influence on the rest of the world is no small thing either, and so it's growing everywhere. It's quite an individualistic world. And uh, while much good has certainly come from individualism, from the concept of the modern actualized self, um, individualism, of course, isn't without many problems either. And we're seeing those play out in real time in the U.S., Um, because of individualism, we live in this unique time where we're more connected than ever, right? We have devices where we can reach out to anyone at any time we want, and yet we've never felt more alone. Uh, In fact, loneliness is literally a modern-day epidemic, and I'm not just making that up. I'm not just saying that because it's sort of I'm on a platform and I can say big things like that. Loneliness is an epidemic. Someone on a much larger platform is saying that, and that's the U.S. Surgeon General. His advisory report that came out um, in May of last year said that loneliness is an epidemic. It says there's a, there's a loneliness of ep- an epidemic of loneliness in the United States, and that lacking connection can increase the risk for premature death to levels comparable to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. I can imagine if I had a teenage kid right now and I saw them smoking 15 cigarettes, I'd want to do something. I'd be like, hey, maybe don't smoke that many cigarettes a day. Would I have the same impulse if they were experiencing loneliness 
which may be just as detrimental. I mean, according to the Surgeon General, it is just as detrimental as smoking those 15 cigarettes a day. Uh, In that document, it warns about the physical consequences of poor connection between people. Uh, He says they can be devastating. He says it's a 29% increased risk of heart disease, a 32% increased risk of stroke, and a 50%, 50% increased risk of developing dementia for older adults. On the screen, you can see that the Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murphy, has said, it's hard to put a price tag, if you will, on the amount of human suffering that people are experiencing right now. In the last few decades, we've just lived through a dramatic pace of change. We move more. We change jobs more often. We are living with technology that has profoundly changed how we interact with each other and how we talk to each other. He says, you can feel lonely even if you have a lot of people around you because loneliness is about the quality of your connections. It's not so much that someone is alone who maybe lives alone. That could be the case. But you can live um, with 10 other people and still feel lonely because it is about the quality, not the quantity, of your connections. In our individualism, something that for decades we heralded as a victory of modern society is now leading us into unhealthy levels of loneliness. And for many of us, uh, especially of the younger generations, of Gen Z and younger, the quality of our connections has been put into jeopardy. We live in an era where we have, again, access to Instant information. Instant connection to people, to the news. Yet where, again, community is crumbling. Violence and misunderstanding is increasing. And while you can talk to more people online, we see in real places that there's more and more polarization. Not less. In the West, we tend to place the individual at the center of every story. And that individual, of course, is always the one telling the story. It's always you, or it's always me, who's placed at the center of the story. Somehow, in my own story, I'm the narrator and the main character. Of course, always the good guy. And this is problematic. Um, This insistence of centering our individual selves instead of the divine, instead of God, has created and fostered patterns of living for me as opposed to for Jesus or God's kingdom. And we're conditioned, of course, to focus on the question, how am I doing? We're taught that the achievement of our personal goals is how we measure success. We strive to do better than the generation before us as opposed to perhaps working together for the generations to come. And the image starts to look like that, right? It's a me-centered story. I'm in the center. I have all these things that 
depending on my moods, depending on the time of day, I may place as a value, I may not. Perhaps uh, sports one day, family another, Jesus when convenient, church if they're going to have a potluck, hobbies, education, work when I need more finance, whatever it is. A me-centered story. Now, if you've been in church, you've probably heard something like this before, you know. Church is not often encouraging you to live for yourself. But I do want to say something real quick before I continue on in this. And that is kind of in contrast, but not actually. It is actually very important to develop a healthy sense of self. Okay? Uh, And for many of us, because of different factors, whatever they are, we were perhaps always told not to think about what we actually wanted or never to trust what our heart desired. And um, this is tragically often the case for women in the church, um, but it can be the case for men as well. Never actually care about what you want, never learn to understand your own desires, No one teaches you how to have a healthy understanding of your own self-worth. And if that's you today, then it actually might be appropriate to begin prioritizing your needs for at least a season as you discover who you really are. Why? So that you can give and contribute from that healthier place. You cannot die to a self you don't have yet. You cannot give away what you haven't discovered yet. That's actually, um, it's a little hard to to wrap your head around. It is for me. But it's, it's this reality. And the line can be hard to find sometimes. But you have to develop this healthy sense of self, of boundaries, right? In order to know when God is calling you out of faith, perhaps to move beyond a boundary. Or out of faith to give away a part of yourself. And when you're early on in that development, it can seem like everything needs to be a boundary, right? Like whenever a friend is asking you to do something that feels a little bit uncomfortable, you might be like, boundary there, boundary there. But that's okay. You're putting all these up to discover then when you can move beyond them. Like in music or art or all these things, you've got to learn the rules before you can break them. Most of the good art, good music comes when you break the rules, but you've got to learn the rules first. You've got to have a self first. And this is how we can kind of make some sense of this paradox that Jesus talks about. The paradox of life that actually goes like this. When we're living a me-centered story, we're actually not often in in, in touch with what's most true about ourselves anyways. Like by simply doing what we want, we often miss out about the deeper desires within. Uh... This is why Jesus talks about denying ourselves. He says, if you want to follow me, deny yourselves and pick up a cross. This tool for death. Deny yourself, pick up a cross. And then he says something like, if you try to keep yourself, you'll never find yourself. If you lose yourself... You will find yourself. What is he talking about? If you lose yourself, you'll find yourself. What good is gaining the whole world if you lose your soul? So I just am saying all of this to acknowledge 
that even as I'm challenging us not to be me-centered, there is a place for developing this healthy sense of self. And that needs to happen first before we can place others above ourselves. What I do want to push us against is when this extreme self-focus, which exists in our culture and in the church, uh, creeps its way into our spirituality. Here's what I mean. We start to read John 3.16 not as God so loving the world that Jesus left the radiance of heaven to take on skin and save the world, but as God so loved me that Jesus came to die for me. Or we read 1 Corinthians 3.16, not as we collectively are the temple where God's spirit dwells, but I am the temple where God's Holy Spirit dwells. We fall prey to a gospel of privilege, a God that says, or a gospel that says, God is on my side. God's going to protect me and bless me and answer my prayers. And then so many of us have our imaginations captured by this, this gospel of privilege, where we're essentially told, if you say a certain prayer, you can go to heaven. You get a golden ticket to paradise while the rest of the world burns. And if you're bored and you need something to do, tell other people about this same prayer so they can say it and get golden tickets as well. This is essentially a gospel of privilege. Look what I get that others don't. And I'll try and get them to get it too, but then it's just a bigger group of privilege. But what if we're actually invited into a gospel of participation? A gospel that calls us to recognize the lordship of Jesus, that he's over all things, and to partner with him and his community, the church, to collaborate in bringing his kingdom here now. A gospel that doesn't say, God's on my side, but calls us to move to God's side, to be a conduit of God's blessing to the world around us. And this gospel is less about privilege, me getting a golden ticket to heaven, and more about participation. I get to participate in a community of redemption. I get to participate in a family on mission. I get to partner with God and the family of God to embody, become the peace of God for my neighbors, for their flourishing, for the common good of all. And this is a much bigger gospel that is beyond us as, is, is as just individuals. This is a gospel that actually can only be lived out together. Inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's not even possible for one person to do. Now Jesus and the writers of the Bible knew that the way of Jesus was beyond any individual. Even Jesus lived it out in community. Uh, this sort of divine spiritual community with the Trinity, with the Father and the Spirit but also a community with his disciples. Um, he lived with others 
almost all the time. He got away and had times of solitude, but he was always with this ragtag bunch of folks that um, quite personally, I would rather have been alone if I was Jesus. I'd have been like, um, they can stay here, and when we have to do work and ministry together, we'll get together. But like, I'm going to sleep in a different, I'm going to go over there, have some me time, and uh, then we'll get together for work, and then I'm going home again, back to my stuff. But Jesus knows that for this good news that he's proclaiming to really be seen by people, it's going to matter how the community interacts and lives together. Jesus knows that. The only way to live out the kingdom of God, Jesus talked about all the time, this kingdom, is in community. Of course, you can't have a one-person kingdom. And we bring about this kingdom one act of love at a time. And this is a truth that necessitates human connection, interaction, communion, and love amongst people. Friends, we see the cost of individualism all around us. Mental health challenges are rising dramatically. Family breakdown is rising and repeating through generations. Societal breakdown is increasing. Polarization is spawning violence, dehumanization, othering, hatred, silence, or or canceling of people. We see the divide between the rich and the poor widening as people pursue their own success or security or power at the expense of their social responsibility and the wider community well-being. Thinking about the whole and not only the individual cleanses us from the thought that God is only interested in saving souls and not all of his good creation. God does want to save your soul. But he wants to save your soul as part of all that he's at work saving. And when we decenter our individualistic self, it reinforces within all of us that Jesus is savior of the world and Lord of all life and all things in it. We're not saved only as individuals who then get to reside in an irrelevant and incidental body called the church. We're invited into a much bigger story of salvation to partner with God in the reconciliation of all things. 1 Corinthians 15, which was read today, speaks beautifully about the power of the gospel. And um, towards the end of what Jenny read, beginning in verse 22, we hear this. I want you to listen for the sort of expansive nature of it. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. After he has destroyed all all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has but under him, this is a funny qualifier, I think, where Paul's like, 
I'm not talking about God when I say everything. I'm not saying that, like, God goes under Jesus' feet. So he says that, you know, that this doesn't include God himself. But once Christ has done this, when the Son himself will be made subject to God who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. And what I want you to hear is the expansive nature of the gospel. All die, but all will be made alive. Jesus is handing over a kingdom to God the Father. He's putting everything under his feet so that God may be all in all. It's an expansive gospel. And this makes perfect sense to what Paul says in other points, stuff that we've read before. Um, What was just read last Sunday in Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20, it says this, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things. Where are all these things? Doesn't matter whether they're on earth or in heaven. Jesus is reconciling them all to himself by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Or in Ephesians 1.10, which when we were in that book of Ephesians, we read over and over again that the mystery of God's will, according to Paul, is to bring unity, reconciliation, unity, to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. It's expansive. And our faith is not meant to be so privately hidden that we forget to be light and blessing to the world. And I know that this church knows this. You know, I know I'm, most, I'm preaching to the choir here, but that's okay. Our faith is not mostly about uh, consenting to right ideas. Do I got my checklist of the right ideas? But about submitting to Jesus, the one who reveals what God is like and the one who models what true humanity is like how we ought to live. Our faith becomes increasingly less about me and more about we. And of course, we're helped in all of this by the Holy Spirit. We're not created to live individualistic lives. We're created for community. And community is at the heart of our gospel and at the heart of what salvation looks like. In the beginning of Genesis, uh, we're told that humanity is created in God's image. That's one of those early things we're told. Male and female, he created them in God's image. And it leaves us with this profound and challenging truth that every single person we meet carries a bit of God or a divine spark, if you want to. Each of us is created to be a visible representation of the invisible God, an image bearer of the creator. We were created to reveal something of what God looks like. Jesus reveals all of what God looks like. We're created to display something of that. Now, that makes each one of us precious, beautiful, worthy of dignity. And it means that every person we meet carries something of God that we might not see, experience, or understand without them. So individuals matter. Individuals are supremely important. Everyone is a gift. 
This is good news. But if we stop here, we can see how this beautiful truth just becomes further kindling for the West's unhealthy individualism. And so the scriptures don't stop there either. Our image bearing doesn't just function with us as individuals. This spark is illuminated and ignited in us by the Holy Spirit. And where we gather together, worship God together, pray together, work together for God's kingdom, God's spirit is uniquely present and at work in more intensified ways. And so we see more of God together. We encounter God more fully, more completely, through communion with each other. In Exodus 19, God speaks to the Israelites, and he says, You're a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Later in the New Testament, Peter picks up on this in in 1 Peter 2. But these two metaphors are a development of the same idea. As a nation, they carry the image of God collectively. As a nation, they are created and called to demonstrate to the world what God is like. They are a nation of priests. Priests are the intermediaries between God and humanity. And here God is saying, as a whole, you're a kingdom of priests. As a whole, not as individuals, you display to the world what God is like. God was saying that other tribes and nations should look to Israel back then to see what God is like and who God is. We see this in action in the book of Joshua. Despite the Israelites' doubts, failures, insecurities, and lack of confidence, the people of Jericho have been in little doubt that the God of the Israelites was different from the gods they worshipped. Spies go into Jericho and... This is what the spies are told. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. In other words, these people of Jericho have known this about God for years. But Israel's calling was meant to be different. It wasn't just about sort of striking fear into other nations and personally benefiting from God's blessing. Instead, it said they were blessed to be a blessing. Israel was called to include refugees, to show generosity, to look after the poor, the outsiders, the foreigners. God made it clear to Abraham in Genesis 12 and then to the family of Israel that they were to be a blessing for the nations. I give you all of this. I'm going to give you all this blessing so that it overflows to all those you interact with and blesses the world. In Isaiah, we hear of this as well. This light that God has given to Israel is not to be just for Israel. It's to be for all peoples, all nations. There was a much bigger story going on here. 
And in Jesus, that becomes true for us, for the church. Jesus calls us to live differently, to be a blessing, and to work with him to bring about his kingdom here on earth. A kingdom that sees the restoration and reconciliation of all things, all people, all nations, all creatures, all creation, to be reconciled under Christ. As we read today, so that God may be all in all. This means that when people look and see the church, when people outside the church look and see the church collectively as the body of Christ, they should see something of what God is like. They should see a Jesus who loves the outsider, who heals the sick and includes the rejected. A Jesus who challenges systems of power rather than cozying up to them or even creating them. A Jesus who rejects violence and abuse of power. A Jesus who draws people to him. A Jesus who forgives the sinner. Brings those who are dead back to life. And brings color and vibrancy to a dreary and often painful world. A Jesus of sacrifice who pours out his life for the unworthy, even the enemy. A Jesus who is the embodiment of love. In Christ, we are no longer to live only for ourselves. To declare that Jesus is Lord means we are no longer the center of the universe. To be in Christ means that together we are Christ's body for the world. With the Spirit's loving and enlightening guidance, we tell the story of Jesus and participate in the working out of his kingdom. Kingdom is a subject that Jesus loves to talk about. It's never too far from Jesus' heart. He's always talking about the kingdom. He taught more about the kingdom than just about anything else. See, he wanted his followers to have this composite picture of what life is like in the kingdom. And so he does all these different teachings. He teaches about right living, about motives and actions and following Jesus' example. He teaches about right thinking, about perspectives and ideas, about Jesus as a moral center. And we see this in his compiled teachings that we call the Sermon on the Mount. If you're wondering where this teaching is at, you can dive into the Gospel of Matthew, read chapters 5 through 7. And then you can read a lot about Jesus' parables where he talks about the kingdom. And in these stories, in these parables, Jesus teaches that God's kingdom is open to everyone. That invitation and acceptance is from God, not the community. And that the end result is big. He he talks about what a mustard seed can turn into. It's big, but the process starts out small and often goes very, very slow. And that it demands all of one's being, mind, body, soul, will, hopes, 
and that it impacts all of life around us. And friends, when we're not individually in the center, we can make space to invite our whole community to join in and participate in God's kingdom, bringing restoration, reconciliation, healing and help to Andersonville and our own neighborhoods. We can hold hope for those who aren't strong enough to hold it for themselves. We can show love for those who believe themselves to be unlovable. I want to say that part again. We can show love for those who believe themselves to be unlovable, perhaps even unlovable by God. And let's just be honest, some people have been told that by the church. And that should break our hearts. And in our neighborhood, I'd venture to guess, in Andersonville, that many have been told that because of their sexual identity, because of who they find attractive, they are unlovable by God. And we, as a community, can show the love of God to these neighbors. But it takes a community deciding to model God's love as the body of Christ. It's not possible for one individual to do alone. It doesn't matter what a church's stance is on that. If one person says, no, God actually loves you, and they take them into a church, again, it doesn't matter what that church's stance is. People can be loving and unloving either way. Uh, and the whole community does not embrace love. Do you think that message is going to be believed? The community of God shows what God is like. No single individual can do it, however well-intentioned they are. But there's an opportunity for us. We can show those who can't hold hope for themselves that hope is possible. We can show those love who feel unlovable. We can live out our faith together. We can do it in community with each other, and even with the community around us, participating together in what God is up to, living out faith, hope, and love in public. In a speech in Washington at the National uh, Prayer Breakfast, Bono said, stop asking God to bless what you're doing. Get involved in what God is doing because it's already blessed. The communal God invites us to be in communion with him and each other and to partner with him in bringing good news to all situations. That's what the gospel means, good news. Good news to all situations, to all people, to all nations as Israel was meant to do and to all of God's good creation. I say amen to that, which means let it be. Let it be so. Let it be true. And you can say amen too. As we seek to center Jesus, belonging with him and his community for the good of the world, here are a few uh, practical invitations. Maybe one or two of these land heavy on your heart. Not these on the screen. 
I don't know why I have that there, but there's something after that. Um, these are some practical invitations. Now, depending on your personality, you might see this whole list and think I've got to do this whole list, and then you'll feel really bad about yourself and probably do none of the list. Don't let that happen today. Okay, practice discernment. Begin listening with the Spirit. Some of these might already be happening in your life. Double down on them if that's the case. Listen for the Spirit's invitation for you. Here's what I mean. For some of us, it might just be practice being present where you're already present. Um, Your life is a mission field, that sort of thing. Like, there is plenty of need (laughs) in your immediate surrounding. Your family, your workplace, those you run into up and down the street. And I know some of you are doing this, right? Folks you've seen outside Jewel or places like that. You're present there, seeing where God's love can be made manifest. But practice being where God has placed you. What he's gifted you with. The particular people, your particular gifts. Practice being faithful there. Second, practice thinking communally and collectively. What if what God is saying to me is for us, sort of thing? Uh, God has called us to belong to one another. And our theology, our practice, our witness, it must be to and for the community, not just for me and mine. Third, you can practice listening. Always way harder than it sounds, right? Listen to people who are different from you. In this church... Uh, in your communities, just listen. A sort of extension of this is practicing curiosity. Right? Your perspective, my perspective, not the only perspective that matters. One way to do this, particularly if you're an introvert, check your bookshelf or your Kindle uh, bookshelf. Uh, expand your sources. Read something from someone who disagrees with you on something that you feel like, you know, really gets at you. Uh, you, We can practice, what do I have next on there? Empathy. Empathy. What does that mean? That means let your heart break for the things that God's heart breaks for. If you're unsure what that is, let your heart break for the things that your neighbor's heart breaks for. Uh, when you see someone whose heart is broken, broken, instead of maybe thinking, that's quite silly that you care so much about that, try and take on their perspective. Practice diversity. Uh, we can learn, we can teach, we can model the diversity of God's kingdom even here. Uh, ethnic, racial, but also sociological, sociopolitical, or different understandings of the world and one another. Um, This is not like an extra-biblical thing. Like, well, if we have time for it, we can get there. This is deeply ingrained in the way the church is to function in the world. Um, This is one of the profound gifts of Martin Luther King, right? We're going to be celebrating him tomorrow. His personal piety, his personal love of God, and his social responsibility were woven together in this profoundly beautiful way. And, And it was actually his deep contemplative relationship with God that fueled his faithful activism in the world where he would not settle for the way things were um, for his people but also for the church at large 
He knew the church of Jesus Christ must always look diverse. And then you can uh, practice local compassion, right? Invest in your local people and communities. Find out what's happening locally. Join in and help. Uh, We have a group that is doing this. uh, And to be quite honest, I'm quite proud of them as they seek to discern how we can best serve and come alongside our new uh, migrant and refugee neighbors. Um, So we have a group in our church doing this. I believe at the ministry community meeting on Sunday, which again is open to all, not just members, um, you can hear ways that we're trying to discern the best way to serve those new neighbors, and you can join in. So come be a part of that. It's a lot of things. See if God's inviting you to one or two, and then do something about it. Do something. Let us keep living into the gospel of the kingdom that Christ has proclaimed is already here. He said the kingdom is at hand. It's so close. Reach out and touch it. Would you pray with me? God, uh, deep down we are ultimately thankful that what you're inviting us into is never just about us. That we're not actually the center of the story. But Jesus is. And that makes for such a better story. That makes for such a more uh, exciting and fulfilling and meaningful and peace-filled and joy-filled and abundant life than if it's just about me. Lord, help us see the joy in following you. As we count the cost, God, may we always remember that that's what your son Jesus suffered for. He he saw the joy set before him. So help us as well to see the joy. Pray that your spirit would empower us to become your people, God. To actually be the body of Christ for our community and in our community. In Jesus' name, amen.